Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel all right. I feel like a wrung out towel. Had a pretty busy day yesterday. How are you feeling? I feel like a podcaster, finally. Whoa. Oh, my God. <laughs> we, it's finally happened. I think, yeah, 20, 28 hours is what you need. 28 that's, hours that's of podcasting. Threshold. So you're yeah. against Malcolm Gladwell because he would say that we become experts at episode 10,000. Yeah. Well, podcast hours are different, I think. Yeah. Well, Maybe. I guess we're definitely expert readers. Do you think you've read 10,000 <laughs> hours? I've definitely read 10,000 hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's not true. I don't know. I, I think I maybe read about a page a minute. Have I read 60,000 pages? Probably. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to do the math on that. Do you ever I, feel I a sense? Do you ever feel a sense of pride? Like, you know, you just go book by book by book, but then eventually, like, I have a, I actually have a stack of books in my apartment right now of the ones that we've done, like uh, the ones that I've done on the podcast. Now I'm organizing my books that way. And yeah. You know, if, you, <laughs> If I look at the stack, I feel a sense of pride because it's like it's so many fucking pages. Did you do an actual stack? Because I had mine going and I had to take it down because it was about to fall over. <laughs> well, see, like we often discuss on this show, some of my books have not made it through my many, many moves. So I have reported on some books that I don't currently have in my possession. But yeah, oh, okay. my stack my stack is getting to the point where, yeah, I'm going to have to uh, convert it into a shelf or something. That's the podcasted shelf. Yeah, I I do have every I I do own every book that I've covered so far, and yeah, uh, it was starting to be a little bit <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> also, I'll I'll take a picture of it. That's cool. Uh, so, anyways, I so this week I came up with a new game. Um, okay. And you know, I always start with a name or whatever, and that's exactly <laughs> a stupid name, and then you work from there. It's like the Carl Pilkington method, and this mm. one's just called What If. What uh, if? So I've got another game you know, centered around randomness. And, you know, I don't feel like explaining anything. I think we just try it, try out one round and you kind of get the feel for it. And okay. all I'm going to ask you to do is choose two random numbers between one and 20. And then we're going to do some speculating. Uh, so okay. they can be like, so I've got, I've got a table here, uh, two columns. So two like kind of categories and uh, you can pick the same number, you know, you know, like, one is the, like the number from first column. Next is the from the second okay. column. So yeah, just okay. give me two numbers. Okay, so I'm gonna choose three. Everyone, you know, you gotta choose three. Third rock from the sun. Everyone's favorite number three, and fourteen. Okay, so that combination. Uh, what if Jane Austen wrote the introduction to a Where's Waldo collection? Oh, <laughs> what would okay, that be? okay. Uh, well. Um, this, the shitty thing about me and Jane Austen is that it's probably similar to like the reason that I read Madame Bovary is like you have to read this classic and I don't think I've read enough Jane Austen to intelligently say what her intro to Where's Waldo would be like. Um, what about you? Have you have you do you feel like what what would her intro be like? Hmm, I think it would it would have to be something about Waldo and. Uh, Maybe maybe Waldo and his girlfriend, who I just learned uh, was named Wilma, didn't know that before. Oh, uh, so it's Where's Wilma? Is there are there any Where's Wilma books? Well, I mean, I don't think there was a separate Where's Wilma book. Okay, um, but I, I imagine a Jane Austen like intro would be like, 
either talking about Waldo and Wilma or like picking apart some sort of uh, relationship or some hasty kind of judgment made by a character like in one of the crazy scenes like just like focusing <laughs> super in on one thing like oh in the factory scene like uh, you can <laughs> see that uh, this one woman like fell prey to superficial flattery <laughs> it's like gonna be <laughs> her downfall yeah. or something it's it's pretty bad I'm pretty I'm sure that um, I'm sure that if I read some Jane Austen or like Pride and Prejudice again it would blow my mind but I feel like it's probably in the same main vein of Madame Bovary where it's like on high school reading lists as part of like like a posterity move like we were talking yeah. about when I read Madame Bovary it's like you know you you can't like understand that shit when you're a teenager like why do they make people read it when you know to to understand Madame Bovary you need, like you need to have had like a few meaningful relationships not like be in high yeah. school um and the same i'm sure the same goes for pride and prejudice yeah okay so so now you know how this works so uh throw me some more numbers all right so i'm gonna go again like in a low range and then a high range so i'm gonna go from two to 19 so what if haruki murakami so you hit on that one okay uh, what if haruki murakami pivoted to graphic novels whoa uh <laughs> what about that world my question is is he doing the drawings himself like is it like uh, he's like the person who's drawing or is he working with an illustrator uh let's say he's working with the best illustrator ever okay okay he's working with like <laughs> yeah okay um yeah that would be first of all it would be so good it would be there'd be like so much like food porn like everyone would be like, this page is like amazing for like learning how to cook spaghetti with beer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it would be the, I feel like the backgrounds would be very like plain almost, you know, you know how yeah, you're, like a graphic would novel be, you're expecting like noises and, and create and craziness. Oh yeah. No, it would be, stuff. it would be like, I almost feel like some of the panels would be like really large, like a full page would just be like one like image of, you know, a lonely single guy sitting somewhere in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, but it would be cool. Cause you know, like eventually we'd get some visualization of his alternate universes. Like in almost every Murakami book, his character will like slip into like an alternate sort of like, narnia-esque um yeah you know totally break down into that yeah so it would get like really crazy i'm sure i mean i'm sure it would be uh, just as amazing as his well probably not people can't really it's hard for people to translate between mediums unless they're unless that's like part of their thing but i mean i would i would do it if murakami came out with a graphic novel i'd buy it probably first day (laughs) (laughs) generate some buzz murakami yeah all right more numbers I'm keeping track, so if you repeat, I'll call you out on it. Okay, okay. So um, let's do some, like, right next to each other. So I'm going to do four, and then the next column is five. Okay. Uh, What if Joan Didion wrote the novelization of Rush Hour, the movie? Oh, my God. That would be so (laughs) good. That would be, like... That's good, too, because that takes place in California, right? Russia, yeah, I guess it does. Yeah, yeah, he like, yeah, he, yeah, that is. Is Oh my god, or something? I forget. No, I think it might actually. I think it is L.A. Like, shit, I gotta look it up. Um, I think yeah, I think 
Chris Tucker's yeah, they're, they're, character. He's chasing him through, he's like, LA, Chinatown or whatever. He's yeah, LAPD, yeah. yeah. LAPD, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. How can I it w- even... It would be so that? good. It would be so ridiculously good. Like, it would be... It, it would have, like, all these weird, like, little details. But, well, first of all, she doesn't really write novels, so I don't know how... I mean, I think she wrote, like, one novel or something. But it would have, like, all these weird details about, like, California, and then she would also, like, somehow, like, bake in there that she, like, knew Jackie Chan... <laughs> and like this is exactly what would happen or like you know or she she knows some like elite hong kong cop or something like that Um, yeah yeah that would be amazing the novelization of rush (laughs) hour by joan didion definitely a day one purchase for me yeah (laughs) see the the greatness of of, uh random number generators Mm. we can uh talk that into existence all right, so I'm gonna do I'm gonna do six and thirteen. All right, what if Kurt Vonnegut was never able to get a publishing deal? Some wow. of them are bad. Yeah, I mean, if he that would just be an unknown sadness, and I'm sure that right. that's out. I'm sure that that's out there. I'm sure that there are authors that are so amazing. But the market is so saturated and they have no connections that it's just like. It would probably be one of those situations kind of like John Kennedy Tool, where like somebody in his family would have to argue for years like, no, like seriously, my dead yeah. brother, <laughs> my dead son or my dead brother or something was like incredible. And uh, I think he would probably like I think what would happen is that posthumously like people like it would come out and people would be like holy shit this guy's amazing it would it would find a way yeah yeah that is interesting to think about though something like like you i don't know but you also you also definitely exist of the same quality but just not you know published not published you also have to think about how those posthumous opportunities would be not as um it wouldn't be as good as someone publishing throughout their lifetime because now because Vonnegut is so revered, if he wrote something, then it would come out versus like if it was, oh, this guy was amazing and we need to publish like an omnibus like after after he died, some stuff would probably get, you know, filtered out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That'd be good. So you haven't you have not done first column high number yet. Okay, first column high number. So I'll do eighteen. And second column, 20. 18, 20. Okay. Uh, what if William Faulkner only ever published short stories? Interesting. Um, so all of his existing novels have to be short form. Oh, well, then, you know, he would just be someone. He would be like an Alice Monroe, I think. He would be like people would be like there was a well, first of all, he wouldn't be as famous because the novel kind of like takes you into a new realm. It's like somebody who makes only short films versus someone who makes their first feature film. It's like for some reason, the novel is people want more content than just short stories, even if you are incredible. So he would be more of an enigmatic like, oh, there was this amazing Southern writer who was like a short story person. Um, I mean, that sounds like. Flannery O'Connor, really? Yeah, like he would be like in that, that. He would be in that category, but he would still be incredible. I mean, I don't know which one, which novel would be the best as a short story, though. That's like a that's like a good question. 
Maybe we can do, people should start, I mean, I'm sure it's out there. Do people do like fan cut downs, like fan edits of books? Like could shitty uh, book reports come out with like light, <laughs> light in August, but it's only 15 pages. I guess. Isn't that what like Cliff Notes is? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go high range. Did I just do number 20 from the second column? Only short yeah. stories. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to do 20 in the first column and did I already do 19 from the second column? Yes, you did. Okay. So that 20 from the first column. 20 from the first column and the highest number that I haven't done from the second column. Okay, that would be 18. Okay, 20 and 18. 2018. Hey, Ooh. last year. What if Danielle Steele wrote okay. <laughs> her own wrote her own reviews? Whoa. Um, do you know anything about Danielle Steele? I know that she's prolific and yeah. does, wrote, writes romance novels. Is it romance what she writes? Is it all romance? I believe so. Or is it? There's that other author. I get her confused with that author, Sue Grafton, that does like the alphabet. Uh, she oh, did yeah. like Sue Grafton wrote like an entire alphabet of novels, like A, B, C, D, E, whatever. Um, I don't know. Is she, I don't know. If she wrote her own reviews, would she be like an egoist? Like, would they largely remain the same would she be writing them just to perpetuate the sale of like her own books or i don't know i mean what would that change because like as it sits now she's literally the best-selling author that's alive really just look Ab that up yep. above jk rowling yeah holy shit that's the thing about like romance novelists and like other people like that like we've talked before about like baldacci and like Tom Clancy and like all these people where it's like they aren't literature heroes, but they secretly are like the biggest. Yes. Yeah. Fourth bestseller of all time. 800 million copies sold. Who's one, two so, and three? Oh, I, I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I, I guess yeah, I, I don't know if that would change much if she wrote her own reviews. She'd no, just be I don't, like, hey, yeah. <laughs> look at my resume. That's all I got. Yeah, to say. exactly. I don't think it would change much. I think I think that people are are in it till to the end. Obviously, if she's if she's one of the best selling. We nice. need to read some okay. shit like that. Yeah, I know. Definitely expand. So I'm I'm begging you to choose the second number as eleven. So just okay. give me give me one number okay. this time. The second and say eleven. Eight, eight and eleven. <laughs> all right. Okay, eight eleven. What if Paul Beatty? published a thousand page novel about pokemon whoa <laughs> dude paul Beatty's thousand page novel about pokemon would be so funny like like uh, it would be so funny for a very specific generation of people who know about pokemon and if it yeah it would just be so hilarious and it would be it would be about like um like you know the south park episode about pokemon have you seen that yeah, Jin Pokemon or whatever. Yeah, where like the parents like kind of subvert the kids' expectations by making Pokemon not cool by getting yeah. into Pokemon. <laughs> but it's also like that episode is also weirdly about like the um you know like Japanese cultural influences like invading the US. So like he would definitely be like playing on that, like what the margin is of Japanese pop culture invading 
the youth of America. But I don't think he would be able to spin it in like a negative way. He would just do like some crazy shit and like he would definitely bring up like, uh, you know, like Japanese internment, like in the in like in world like during World War Two and kind of yeah. like make it really weird and like in your face. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> every uh, that's why you wanted me to pick 11 because every author like what if william faulkner wrote a thousand page book about pokemon <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i know a non-contemporary what if joan didion wrote a thousand page book about pokemon that would be amazing too yeah <laughs> mm. okay should we do one like one final one yeah let's do it um first column six already did it okay first call what have i not done in first uh column? you done two through six eight eighteen twenty oh okay um 14 in the first column and five one of the lower lower numbers you already five did you already did five but all the other ones are open six all right 14 six what if jrr tolkien published a lengthy erotica series oh my god <laughs> um something i know about token is that he famous like towards towards like the the times of because lord of the rings is published early on right and then somewhere in like the 70s people started really reading it and dressing up as elves and stuff like that and i know that he didn't like it so <laughs> i feel like it would be the same sort of catch 22 with him where it would be really successful but people would be really into it at you know erotic affairs and stuff like that and he would just like hate its own success i think maybe yeah people would dress up as his erotic characters and or <laughs> make film adaptations of it and he would just be like really embarrassed the fan overall. fiction too yeah, the fan fiction too. Oh my god, there's there's probably endless Lord of the Rings uh, erotica fan fiction. So imagine it just doubled up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm gonna throw one real quick that that didn't get covered. What okay. if uh, uh, what if Thomas Pynchon mm -hmm. uh, wrote the novelization of the entire Fast and the Furious series? It would be so good. <laughs> It would be so like so he writes Fast and the Furious one through eight, but it's Pynchon. Yes, yep. Is the eighth one coming out? Uh, I don't know. Hobbs and Shaw. Like, did he? Off. Does he also write Hobbs and Shaw? Oh yeah, the, the whole <laughs> the universe. whole thing. Anything that has to do. Well, first of all, Tokyo Drift would be like really good. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm down. I'm ready for Pynchon Fast and the Furious. <laughs> <laughs> I know sometimes that's so all good. you can say, you know. You know that would be. I, I would be interested in seeing what that is. I have no. I idea would read what that. Would be, but I have no. Well, like like some things, you know, that it would be like, you know, he would have fun because those those movies, when you really think about it, they do have a lot of characters, which Pynchon does a lot of characters too. There's in some ways they're ensemble films, you know, with like eight different people have their cars and like whatever. Yeah. So he would definitely get into that, and everyone would have like a really bizarre name. Yeah, he would have a field day with that, like, mm -hmm. and the names of the cars and stuff. And uh, then it would also have, you know, like, there would be, like, one part where, like, the like someone's car is, like, a sentient being. Or there's, like, a steering wheel that has its own thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Byron the Bulb. Byron the uh, HID. 
yeah whatever <laughs> uh anyways so that was what if and that's probably an endlessly repeatable game you just, what you if know, yes a classic we can play that again yeah uh, i'll save some of the ones that we didn't use okay so uh this is an odd numbered episode so i'm going first and Correct. um yeah just to remind everyone trevor and i the this podcast is about uh each of us have a shitty book report on a book that you know we didn't discuss beforehand so hearing it for the first time here so today I want to talk about a book that I read in college. Okay. For now, college studied, or uh, in college? Uh, for, actually. Okay. Now, now I studied electrical engineering, so, you know, 95% of my courses had no connection to literature in any way. And so I was just reading on my own and stuff. And my courses had all, you know, textbook, textbooks and uh, just math, lots and lots of math. But I wanted to make sure that my like electives or my uh, I forget what they called them, my school, but electives make sure they were yeah as far away from math and science as possible to give myself a break from that stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the electives I took was actually called something like human creativity or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. did you ever take a class that was like really bizarre? Well, the the thing, my sc- I never took too many classes that were really bizarre. But you know, I went to art school, school of shout out school of visual arts in Manhattan. So they the humanities courses are, you know, they're put together by people who are SVA's whole deal is that every professor is still a working artist, even though they bend yeah. the rules for a few um, legacy professors. Let's put it that way, um, but. Yeah, I mean, like, imagine, like, all these artsy New Yorkers, they came up with really, there's really weird course titles in my school. Like, there, there's one class that you can take called The Anatomy of Hell, and it's all about, <laughs> hell, like, the representation the of the underworld, like, throughout time, you know? And, like, there, there was another one called uh, Society and Its Malcontents, so basically just people who, like, rail against society as a whole. Kind of yeah. thing. So there was like weird classes like that. Though I didn't really. I took. I had professors that took that made those classes, but I I was taking more like East Asian literature and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> what? It, so what was so, this course that you took? Uh well, I'm. I mean, this is just like an aside, but like I took a a course called like creativity or something like that. We did like improv. We made. We created like mandalas. We did a bunch of art and cool. stuff like that. Like it, it ruled. But another class that I ended up taking as like a humanities elective was called uh, the Caribbean Mosaic. Whoa! And it was like a really good class. You know, it covered the whole uh, the history, the geography, all the different cultures of the uh, Caribbean islands. Made and, you, you know, really used pissed to be off able... at French people. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, all of <laughs> Europe and you know all the colonies and stuff. But I used to be able to name all of them. Like I think there's like 28 nations. One of my one of my very best friends from London is from Martinique. Nice. Yeah. So I That's... I'm I'm really fascinated about what you're about to talk about because I my life has also been affected by the French Caribbean and Martinique specifically. So I learned some stuff when I was in London about about the French Caribbean, and it is fascinating to say the least. Yeah. And so, you know, I was thinking about this class and I remembered uh, reading and then like writing an essay on this really good book uh, about mm-hmm. the the island nation of Haiti for this class. And like mm-hmm. 
my original plan, which would have been so cool, was to f- try and track down this old report in my like laptop or whatever and just try and, <laughs> you know, just read from it today and we could maybe have a laugh at how bad my writing was or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but sadly, you know, I couldn't find it, so I had to read this book again. Uh, so what I've got for you this week is The Dewbreaker by Haitian-American author Edwige Dantica. Okay. Uh, so Dantica, she was, she was born in the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince, okay. but her family moved to New York when she was really young. Uh, and she got involved with writing really early. Uh, she authored some pieces for a local magazine, a uh, local like New York City magazine called the New Youth Connections. Mm-hmm. Um, she got her MFA at Brown University, and then shortly after she published her first novel, uh, Breath, Eyes, Memory. And then, you know, since then, she's published many, many works, um, and you know, won a lot of awards and published a lot of things that deal with you know personal and national identity, and that kind of stems from her residing in the United States, but still feeling like Haiti, you know, is her home. Uh, she also writes about a lot of you know politics, which I'll, I'll touch on with the uh, the Dewbreaker, and then you know a lot of complex family relationships and and trauma and stuff like that, which I'll also touch on uh, mm. covering the Dewbreaker. Uh, so. Edwige's her work as a whole is, you know, really all about just giving voices to the voiceless or the oppressed, really just like, you know, shining a light on, on unseen ties that bind and, and different things like that. And really just also offering remembrance for, you know, those of, who have struggled in, in, you know, the history of, of her country. And I would say that, you know, the Dewbreaker in particular checks all those boxes. Uh, so this is a book from 2004, I believe. Yeah. So I would have read this in like 2009 or 2010. Mm-hmm. So it was like pretty new at the time. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a collection of short stories that are connected, but like their, their connection relies a little bit on some background knowledge of Haiti's history. So like the main characters in the Dewbreaker, they're all of Haitian heritage. And, you know, a huge part of the 20th century, like, Haitian history that I was not aware of before this class and before reading the book was that, you know, there was, like, a brutal dictatorship uh, in Haiti in the, uh, you know, late 20th century Mm -hmm. um, from the uh, Duvalier family. Uh, So we, you know, we here at Shitty Book Reports, we always lean pretty hard on Wikipedia for some things when we have to <laughs> cover a book in a week. So let me just paraphrase the introductory paragraphs for the two, these two people like from the uh, Duvalier. So the first was Francois Duvalier. He was also known as Papa Doc Duvalier because he was a doctor before becoming a politician. Uh, so he was like, he was the president of Haiti, Haiti from 1957 to 1971. And after, after thwarting a military coup d'etat, in 1958, his regime rapidly became totalitarian and, and you know, horrible. And there was a undercover government death squad called the Tantan Makut, mm-hmm. who killed a, a political opponents indiscriminately. And, you know, it was thought to be so pervasive that Haitians became highly fearful for expressing dissent, you know, even in private. Mm-hmm. And Duvalier further sought to solidify his rule by incorporating elements of Haitian mythology into like a personality cult. So mm-hmm. it's it's a really, you know, fascinating history. And then, you know, a- after him, 
you know, came his son, uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, who they called the baby doc, who was the, you know, he was the president <laughs> after his father. <laughs> yeah. I mean, strange titles for these menacing people, um, or nicknames, you know, he was the president after his father died in 1971. Uh, and he ruled until like, uh, uh, he was overthrown in 1986. Uh, so, you know, this is like a 30 year history of this family. Uh, you know, after assuming power, he introduced some changes to his father's regime and, you know, delegated a lot of his authority to his advisors. But a lot of the violent um, happenings just continued, you know, like thousands of people were killed or tortured or hundreds of thousands of people fled the country during this time, you know, and he made I know that I know that this is like a weird and horrible thing to ask but just for like some context like is this family are are they like white french people or are they are... no okay that's interesting yeah papa too. doc he he ran on like a black nationalist platform okay they're okay. both they're both haitian natives all right um and you know so they they maintained like a lavish sort of lifestyle in the public eye well you know poverty among the people of haiti was you know incredibly widespread mm -hmm. um so you know if you're in, interested in this sort of history at all i would encourage you to maybe start with just a little bit of background and then jumping into you know this book here the dew breaker right uh so this you know this book is about like a woman, a young woman who finds out from her elderly father that, you know, he was what was called a dew breaker, which is, you know, it was a term for, I guess, like the, you know, thugs that were used by the Duvalier family to, to, to torture, you know, political dissenters. Um, you know, so she is in this first opening chapter, she's finding out that her father was a dew breaker. You know, he escaped Haiti. Uh, they moved to America when she was a child. Like it's, it sort of mirrors, uh, Danticat was like her life, you know, and they started a life in America and then she's, you know, dealing with the fact that this, you know, quiet, gentle, honorable man that she looked up to had this like extremely dark past and like a, you know, a mountain of guilt that's followed him to mm -hmm. America. And, you know, the other parts of the book just jump through time and space to Haiti during that era and, you know, other, related stories. Uh, so Dantica, she's, she's very skilled at writing about this sort of era of, of violence and trauma in like an indirect way. So, you know, it's not because it's like this collection of kind of loosely connected short stories. It's not like someone's life story. Like, you know, this happened and this happened, but there's so much that she, implies like there's so much where it's showing you maybe the results but not like the direct cause or the direct problem or maybe you know there's something similar happens in one story that takes place in a different generation but it completes the puzzle presented by like an earlier chapter hmm. and again you know she's really really talented and you know in in reading more about what other people thought of this book. There's some good points made about how she sort of tackles how uh, Haitian authors during the time that Duvalier's had to deal with, you know, government censorship, 
had to write in subtext and in clever ways to sidestep, you know, violent criticism and backlash. And that's, that's something we've kind of covered a lot so far. This podcast is how many times it's been, I guess you had to kind of, uh, speak in, in riddles or write like authors had to, uh, avoid that sort of fate. Like I know you talked about it with Bulgakov. Uh, right. I talked about it with the two Czech, uh, Czech authors, mm-hmm. uh, Kundera and Clean. Yeah, it's usually it's usually a very interesting. I, I actually going back to college days, like it, a lot of my professors would give lessons about because there's like a whole era of film in the U.S. McCarthyism with like the blacklist of like communist, you know, filmmakers and stuff like that, and it's often a an interesting filter like censorship. Like, obviously, I'm very against censorship and almost everyone, if you put them to it, would say, yeah, like censorship is bad. But there's an interesting effect to it that like a lot of interesting art comes out of people having to dodge around extreme censorship. Yeah, dealing with a limitation. And that's interesting. You bring up McCarthyism, like one of the uh, one of the I think the black ball, like the target to that wasn't, I think, uh, Dalton Trumbo, who wrote uh, Johnny Got His Gun. Yep, Johnny got his gun. Yep. Yeah, he was connected to the film too. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't want to talk too 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 much about the plot, but um, it's a fantastic book. And you know, my only my only beef with it probably is that I wish some of the stories were expanded. You know, sometimes mm. short stories put me in that way. Even though they were connected, it feels like you know, I want I want <laughs> it's stupid. I want every good book to have a you know, 500 plus page option, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. This was maybe, good. Do you want 500 more pages? Yeah. You know, maybe in the future that could be a thing. Like there's, there'll be an algorithm that can make that happen. Like yeah, we, we, like, we analyze like robot, this book. An AI. Yeah. Yeah. We analyze gives... it and we can make it go on forever if you want. Hey, maybe, maybe there'll be an AI that will give you the thousand page Paul Beattie book about Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. Just, just plug in like two options couple options that'd be great uh anyways okay so <laughs> damn that that's cool to think about um so i'm gonna finish off with a one star review here let's see like i didn't i didn't pick one in particular uh mm-hmm. but the few that i saw all cited confusion as to why they didn't enjoy it uh, and i would say that's probably because like i mentioned before a little bit of background knowledge definitely helps uh and that's why i think it was a fantastic book for my teacher and my professor to assign uh Hmm. like you know midway through the course um i don't think it's fair to stamp a rating on it because of that though because of you know how many people have read ulysses or whatever without understanding a goddamn thing and stamped it as a masterpiece right exactly this is a this it's an interesting book uh this is not the book that i'm reporting on this week but your description of of this that novel reminds me of another book um, called The Brief History of Seven Killings. I would give a short shout out to that book, which is about it's like historical fiction surrounding the assassination attempt on Bob Marley, which is yeah, which, uh, Marlon James, right? Marlon James. Yeah, which was a real event. But it's like an interesting like it's like it's kind of got the same vibes of of, you know, 
an island nation that you may not know everything about. So as you're reading the book, you're also looking up things about Jamaica. And, it, and it's a very, like, really interesting time politically when he decided to, like, the setting of the novel is an interesting choice for educating you about Jamaica. So I would say that's what you were reminding me of, which... If I were to guess, I, I'm guessing Marlon James probably took inspiration <laughs> from yeah from uh, Dew Breaker. That's what it is. Yeah, the Dew Breaker. Dew Breaker. Awesome. Cool. Good job. Um, my book this week is uh, an author that I've done before. So basically, I broke the mold when I was talking about. Allie Smith and both I reported on both of her books Autumn and Winter and I had said at that time where it was like I never thought that Allie Smith would be the person that was my first double author because for some reason in my mind on the podcast that was like you know breaking the mold of like doing an author two times Doubling so down. yeah yeah so I'm doubling down with someone who I've now you know gone back and said the person who I would definitely double down on is, you know, I have like I talked about my stack of books that like is my stack of books of the ones that I've podcasted. And next to that stack of books is a stack by one author that if I, you know, I basically can't leave his books behind because they're too, <laughs> too important to me. So an equally large stack is just one giant pile of books sitting there by one Yu-Gi-Oh! Mishima which is, you know, the author that I did for the very first episode of Shitty Book Reports, um, Confessions of a Mask, is probably my number one recommended book. Like, when people... Do you have a book like that, Mark? Like, when people kind of s sort of figure out that you're a book nerd and they say, like, oh, what would you suggest? Is there something that you jump to, like, as, like, kind of the default answer? Like, uh, Yeah, I kind of always recommend uh, Confederacy of Dantes. Right, Just because, yeah. I don't know, I feel like anyone could kind of appreciate it and anyone can get into it that's my that like that like so. when people start an, a conversation with me about like what is deep literature i would definitely be like yeah confessions of a mask like everyone can relate to the idea that maybe you don't know yourself 100 <laughs> percent. so yeah. that's what i would say that's how, how i would suggest but the book that i'm doing this week is also by mishima but it is the first book in his final series of four novels the the four novels together are known as the sea of fertility um but the first book is spring snow and it was published in i just want to say he was number five on the uh, author column so you just missed him you got four and six so you okay. could have gotten that you could have talked about mishima making a pop-up book but you missed it oh my god a mishima <laughs> pop-up book would not be for children <laughs> 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 that would be one in the adult section of the uh manga uh that would be probably right next to um murakami's graphic novel um actually come to think comes out of it and cuts you it's like yeah, the next yeah, page oh, is yeah, talking about <laughs> yeah a, like a little a little blade comes out and like cuts your wrists um <laughs> Beauty is death. Actually, we didn't talk about in if Murakami had a graphic novel, it would be all sorts of pornographic. Oh yeah, <laughs> there would be parts of it that were food porn, and then we had parts of it that are actual porn. <laughs> um, 
But okay, so Spring Snow by Mishima. I, it actually has like a pretty interesting, just in research for the podcast, I never really thought about it like this before, but it has an interesting publishing path because it was serialized in Japan between 1965 and 1967, gets published in book form in 1969. And then the, the English translation, the first English translation actually comes in 1972. That's two years after Mishima dies in 1970. So the English version of the Sea of Fertility is kind of posthumous. So basically, Mishima tries to take over a government building as one of the most famous authors in Japan at the time. And things do not go well. And he ends up uh, killing, like, uh, you know, completing his plan of ritual suicide inside of a government building um, with the help of some uh, eccentric student followers of his so uh you know to get more history on that you can go read you know read about him online you could also listen to our first episode um from from 29 weeks ago which is a crazy thing to say um but i don't want to go too much into mishima's personal history because that was more the introduction of the author to the podcast so let's talk about spring snow um, in re-researching uh, Spring Snow for the podcast, I kind of didn't realize how much like back and forth drama I had read. Um, Spring Snow is a Japanese drama where uh, the basic events of the plot are happening in the year 1912 to 1914. And it's a novel set in the early years of what's called the Taisho period, which is within the reign of Emperor Taisho. And it's about the relationship between this young guy named Kiyoki, and he's the son of like a family that's rising in the ranks of Japanese society, and his relationship to uh, a young girl named Satoko, who's the daughter of an aristocratic family that's going down in society. So if you can imagine both of their families, it's sort of like, we're coming up, and then her family is like, we're going down. So like that's how they associate with each other. Um, and I think it's like sort of a mutual beneficial relationship between their two families. And... Um, the novel's theme, this is from Wikipedia too, but the novel's theme center on the conflicts in Japanese society caused by westernization in the early 20th century. So that is a theme that comes along throughout the book of, you know, and honestly throughout Mishima's life. One of the reasons why he took over that government building is because he was an extreme conservative who believed that Japan should stay as it was under, you know, an emperor's... Uh, reign rather than this westernization of democracy which that's something that is sort of hard to reckon with as like an extreme fan of Mishima because you know when I talked about I visited Japan and when I talked about him it's sort of like it is kind of a subject that you would sort of have to tread lightly and kind of saying like I'm not like a Mishima head who believes that the government should be like a conservative ancient form of government which he strongly believed I'm more a fan of his beautiful writing and you know it's it's kind of like an awkward you know thing to talk about I don't know if there's an equivalent person to the U.S. but it's like you know imagine someone who is extremely conservative and maybe even slightly racist and kind of isolationist but was an amazing novelist so i don't know if we have someone exactly like that in in the u.s but that's kind of machine's standing um a cool thing a cool device that happens in spring snow and throughout um the sea of fertility 
uh, tetralogy, which is a very weird word that I only hear used about this set of novels because <laughs> tetralo- that? oh, tetralogy seven. means it's it, tet- tetralogy is to four books as trilogy is to three books. Okay. So all the time you're hearing people say the Sea of Fertility tetralogy, and it's like that's the only time I ever hear this. It's like the most famous. I would have guessed four- quadrilogy. I know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why it's called tetralogy. Don't ask me. <laughs> this is a shitty book report. I haven't gone into all the etymology <laughs> of everything. Yeah. Um, but a cool device that happens and is kind of introdu- introduced in Spring Snow, the first of four books, is that the novel, the plot that I just told you about is between Kiyoki and Satoko. And um, Ki- one of Kiyoki's best childhood friends is a guy named Honda, Shike- Shigekuni Honda, which, of course, I've definitely butchered that pronunciation. But um, he's a school friend of Kiyoki's and one of the main witnesses of the events throughout the novel. But Honda is actually the person who is the main character throughout the four novels. But in this first book, he's kind of just like a side character, which is sort of interesting because you get so involved with this young guy, Kiyoki. And he, just like uh, many other um of Mishima's characters, he is often referenced as sort of, even the back of my book says, um, Mishima is like Stendhal in his precise psychological analysis and like Dostoevsky in his explorations of darkly destructive personalities. Um, Kiyoki, the main character, he is the darkly destructive personality in this book. He does things that you as the reader know are, um, you know, he lies about things. He lies about things in his relationship to Satoko because of, um, you know, pride or, you know, and this is an era, you know, we're talking about 1912. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in between letter writing and stuff like that. Um, He... You know, he lies to her about going to going to a brothel because he wants to, like, negate his attention attentions for her. But then he, you know, messages her and says, burn the letter that I that I, uh, you know, sent to you. And there's a lot of back and forth, basically, about, like, what do you know? What do I know? And he's not the best dude. Like, he's he's kind of mean. He has this ongoing relationship with this girl from childhood through adolescence and early adulthood until they're around 20 years old where it's like she gets engaged, but he doesn't like that very much. So he starts screwing around with who knows what through letters and everything like that. So there's a lot of betrayals. There's a lot of romance um, and and kind of a lot of back and forth. Like when you read the plot of this novel on Wikipedia, it's like... It's actually a lot more winding and detailed than I remember it as a book. I guess I was absorbed into the drama of it as I read it, but what remained were only a few kind of key points because it's like these Siamese princes come into their lives and there's these two Siamese princes who who kind of are embroiled in the drama and then there's all these side characters. There's like a doctor and, you know, all these different things. So... In the same way, remember how I was talking about the idiot in Dostoevsky and I had my fiance read all the Russian names? Yeah. So in the same way with this book, I didn't have anyone read the Japanese names, but to bring you through on Wikipedia the set of major characters and minor characters, there's major characters, Kiyoki, the Marquise, and the Marquise Matsugai, the former Mar- the former Marquise, Satoko, the Count and Countess of Ayakura, Shigakuni Honda, which is that side character that becomes the main character, Mr. and Mrs. Honda, Shigeyuki 
Ayanuma and Mine, the maid, Yamada, the steward, Tadashina, Satoko's maid. So basically, like, those are all the major characters. We're not even getting into the minor characters. Emperor Maiji, Princess Kasugua, Kasuga, Mor- Dr. Mori, Dr. Ozu. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, turn of the century uh, you know, turn of the 20th century Japanese drama of people writing each other letters and, you know, you're just imagining people, you know, in uh, kimonos kind of silently contemplating different things. But the core of the book is Kiyoki and his kind of messing around with Satoku until eventually he kind of decides that he is, in fact, in love with her and, and lots of kind of different emotions surrounding that but in the same style you know um i i think i said in the first podcast sometimes i think of mishima as the japanese hemingway he's also sometimes referred to as the japanese proust and i could definitely get down with that a lot of people say that the sea of fertility saga is somewhat proustian i would say it is in some ways but it also has that eastern philosophy bent that you know Honda, the main character or the side character in Spring Snow, goes on throughout the rest of these four novels to kind of recognize throughout his life different things that may or may not be about the rebirth of his friend um, and the main character of this book. what did I see? I'm even forgetting the names of like the main characters. That's how like horrible it is that you have to kind of like keep these straight when you're, when you're reading it, the main character have one of those things. Does it have like a family tree in the beginning? Or like, it does not like it does not characters. You have to make your own. Maybe it does. Like, I don't know. I think you do. Yeah. You kind of have to make your own or have like a Wikipedia article open, but it's interesting that, you know, reading spring snow it does have that like proustian thing of like as you go on to read the second book which is called runaway horses um there's there's things that he was working on that we're going to recall throughout all four of these novels and it's really fascinating kind of the things that he gathers together about you know the impressions that we have about objects in our lives and 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 there's just like endless like really great quotes um from this book uh just to give you a sample of this is one of my favorite um, quotes from the novel and it's actually uh, it's actually a quote that I keep on my computer in a text file just to read every now and then so you know how much I fell in love with with this quote from reading spring snow so this is about Kiyoki looking at a beetle on his windowsill his eye was caught by the iridescent back of a beetle that had been standing on the windowsill but was now advancing steadily into his room. Two reddish purple stripes ran the length of its brilliant oval shell of green and gold, and now it waved its antennae cautiously as it began to inch its way forward on its tiny hacksaw legs, which reminded Kiyoki of minuscule jeweler's blades. In the midst of time's dissolving whirlpool, how absurd that this tiny dot of richly concentrated brilliance should endure in a secure world of its own. As he watched, he gradually became fascinated. Little by little, the beetle kept edging its glittery body, glittering body closer to him as if its pointless progress were a lesson that when traversing a world of unceasing flux, the only thing of importance was to radiate beauty. Suppose he were to assess his protective armor of sentiment in such terms. Was was it aesthetically as naturally striking as that of the beetle, and was it tough enough to be as good a shield as the beetle's? 
At that moment, he almost persuaded himself that all its surroundings, leafy trees, blue sky, clouds, and tiled roofs, were there purely to serve this beetle, which in itself was the very hub, the very nucleus of the universe. So this guy, Mishima, was like trippy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like he's he's like kind of saying, you know, there's a lot of kind of perfectly um, Mishima quotes in there, especially um, that one uh, in the midst of times dissolving whirlpool, a dot of richly concentrated brilliance should endure in a secure world of its own. Um, and, you know, saying possibly the only thing of importance was to radiate beauty. Those are things that are at the core of Mishima's philosophy. He was someone who was darkly deeply disturbing um and and his relationship between death and beauty was something that he lived out you know in his life up to the point of death of basically saying you know he was someone who trained his body extremely physically he was like almost like a bruce lee-esque type of fit for being somebody who is also writing you know dozens of novels and um he believed until the very end of like this beauty and death and richness of of spirit all has to do with radiating beauty, which is, you know, something that you could definitely argue against philosophically, but it was something that he was, you know, very dedicated to. Um, another quote directly from Spring Snow is... This one is actually really interesting too. Time is what matters. As time goes by, you and I will be carried inexorably into the mainstream of our period, even though we're unaware of what that is. And later, when they say that young men in the early Taisho era thought, dressed, talked in such a way, in such and such a way, they'll be talking about you and me. We'll all be lumped together in a few decades. People will see you and the people you despise as one and the same, a single entity. So it's sort of you know, going through the motions of he has all of these kind of intense thoughts about, um, you know, hatred, beauty, death, and, you know, all the while Kiyoki is going through this, you know, strange relationship where two families are being forced together and he doesn't really know about his feelings for this young woman and kind of plays with her emotions. And, and honestly, the communication of the times is, is, how people kind of can and can communicate with each other. So overall, obviously it sounds like I love spring snow. It's an amazing novel. It's an amazing insight into Mishima's life. If you know anything about him and his other novels, starting on the sea of fertility is sort of one of those epic journeys where you kind of get to a point in your Mishima fandom where you say, okay, now I'm going to read all four of these books and they're richly connected with themes of karma rebirth uh, suicide and death and and pretty much everything that um, Mishima was all about. So um, so this isn't a good start though. So Confessions of could you say Confessions of a Mask is is the first book to read by him? I would say a good start would be Confessions of a Mask. Possibly Temple of the Golden Pavilion would also be a good start. But I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't say that Spring Snow would be a bad start. I would say you know don't start in the second book of the fourth of the series. Don't start with <laughs> Runaway Horses. But I don't really think that there's any error in starting with any of Mishima's books. He's a little bit like one of those authors that, you know, I'm sure a criticism from somebody could be like, oh, every book is the same kind of thing. That's uh, definitely yeah. not true. But it's like, you know, there's not a Mishima book that doesn't talk about beauty, death and, you know, mind bending 
thoughts about consciousness and time. <laughs> yeah, it's but, okay to share a theme, you know? Yeah, but maybe that's something that I just can't get sick of because, like I said, my stack of Mishima books is about 10 or 12 thick and they travel with me <laughs> always. So, um, yeah, so I'll go on to say I, I grabbed my one-star review from Michelle on Goodreads and uh, here's, here's her, her one-star review. This is the story of a stupid hero written by a fruitcake author. Hero wants girl, girl wants hero, hero refuses to act, girl gets engaged, hero could intervene but says nothing, the engagement goes through, finally the hero acts, essentially raping the girl, girl gets pregnant, families are disgraced, girl shaves head and enters a nunnery. Hero gets reincarnated and goes through two more books, after which the author tries to take over the government, fails, and kills himself. <laughs> there are probably a few subtle points I missed, but that pretty much sums it up. Interesting at first, but unrewarding by the end. So uh, you yeah. can either you can either agree with me or agree with Michelle. I think uh, it's an it's a fascinating saga that goes through both real life and through the fictional waves of Mishima's writing. And uh, you know, check out Spring Snow. Nice, nice. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter, and iTunes now at SBR The Podcast. Sometimes you need to search for us as SBR Space The Space Podcast. We're still a fledgling podcast, so um, you know, look for us in every way that you can. You can also email us uh, at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us your comments, suggestions, corrections, and whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. See ya.